By mid-June 1815, war had ravaged Europe for 23 years. Citizens of the British Empire waited to hear their kingdom's fate, which rested on a decisive battle near Waterloo in Belgium. Put yourself in their spot. If the French general Napoleon wins the battle, Britain will fall under his dictatorial rule. The British will be ruled by a foreign power after all these years of war. But if British General Wellington and his coalition forces win the battle, Britain will be free from that tyranny. The fate of the British Isles hung in the balance that June day. Well, once the battle was decided, news was carried by ship from the continent to the southern coast of England, pre-digital age. So it's carried across the English Channel to the southern coast of England, and from there, signals, be they flags or lamps, carried the news to London, where the message was announced again all the way along by signals. So on the way to London, the news of the battle reached Winchester. And the signals sent out the message on the tower of the cathedral there at Winchester. You can picture the crowds gathered below to get the first word of what had happened in the battle. That foggy day, they strained their eyes to read the battle's verdict. And the message their eyes saw crushed their hearts. Wellington defeated. Dejected crowds turned in disbelief toward their homes. All of their hopes had rested in the great Duke Wellington. But now this woeful message began to spread through the land. Their hopes and their dreams were dead. Can the sorrow of those souls in Winchester on that foggy June day, can they begin to compare with the horror that filled the heart of Mary Magdalene the day that Jesus was crucified? Let's reacquaint ourselves for a few moments with Mary Magdalene. There's numerous Marys that appear in the gospel accounts. It must have been a very uh, widely used name as we find a number of them and need to figure out which Mary is which Mary. Jesus' own mother was named Mary. But the Mary that we find in John chapter 20 lived in the humble village of Magdala along the western shores of Lake Galilee. We're given no details, but we do know that Mary was tormented by seven demons. Now, don't read that to mean that she was in league with Satan. During the days of Jesus' ministry, demon possession was commonly linked to physical infirmity of one form or another. Oppressed by seven demons, we're not sure entirely what that means, but even to this day, demonic oppression can certainly be part of an illness. That does not mean that medication could not counteract that tool in the hand of a demon. We have not grown out of the presence of 
angels and demons in our modern world. They are still there and they still operate. But the tool that a demon uses can certainly be counteracted by a tool that man uses in some instances, such as penicillin. But this is a day before the medications that we know. And so perhaps they saw something that we do not always see, but they understood her to be oppressed by seven demons. Whether that means there were seven seasons of disease in her life or how they counted that, we cannot be sure. We know this about Mary of Magdala, and that is that she was in very bad shape. But Mary met Jesus one day. And that was the end of that. Jesus healed her of her torment. And from that day forward, this Mary of Magdala began, became Christ's devoted follower and began to follow him wherever he went. In a unique way, she traveled with a group of women from Galilee in the north, she living not very far from where Jesus centered his ministry at Capernaum, and she traveled with this group of women, with Jesus and the disciples, south to the region of Judea. She supported Jesus with these women. She provided for the disciples financially and perhaps providing food and securing housing and just working behind the scenes to allow the mission to go forward using the resources that she had to do this. And in the end, in Judea, it was a bitter mission. Mary watched Jesus die on a Roman cross. She was with him to the bitter end. And so Mary Magdalene saw the message all too clearly. Jesus defeated. It's this Mary that we meet in John 20. Jesus is dead. From her perspective, his mission is over. Death has won. And Mary's heart is crushed beyond description. We read that she discovers then in that state and reports also an abandoned tomb in John chapter 20. As if the horror that has come just continues to get worse. We read there in verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So Jesus dies on Friday as Mary watches. She and the other women who traveled in support of Jesus saw where his body was laid to rest. They returned to their homes. They prepared spices for Jesus' body. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the law. Mary returned then to the grave site just before the morning light early on Sunday morning. And what she finds there shocks her. The large stone that is rolled along a trench in front of the small doorway in order to seal the tomb. No one could move the stone alone. It was rolled back. Someone was tampering with the tomb. Verse 2, 
So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that would be John, the author of this gospel, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who was uniquely close to Jesus during his ministry. And Mary says to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. They have taken him is, of course, ambiguous. But grave robbery was common in those days, and then again it was absolutely unprecedented that a crucified enemy of the state would be granted burial with the upper class. And so it would have been quite obvious for her to believe, to conclude indeed, that the Romans had moved the body. We don't know what they have done with him. That would refer to the other women. Peter and John, upon this report, investigate, beginning at verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, that would be John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. I will purposefully focus attention today on Mary, but Peter and John's investigation of the tomb is obviously crucial to the church's trust in the risen Christ. But just in these verses, 3 through 10, just two observations. First, Per Jewish practice, corpses were wrapped with long strips of cloth with spices applied to the strips. A separate face cloth was wrapped around the head of the corpse. So it seems that the strips of cloth were right where they were. Stiff with blood, marking the place then, and perhaps even like memory foam, marking the contours of Jesus' body, which passed through them in the resurrection. There's some conjecture here, but this is very likely from a number of things that we see in the text. The face cloth, then, was either lying a few inches above the rest of the body wraps, or perhaps was indeed folded and in another spot. At any rate, the reference to the face cloth is an eyewitness detail that seems to stretch beyond the very possibility of fabrication. It is a detail that Peter and John saw, witnessed, and remembered. Jesus was risen. The second observation that I'd like to make from verse 8 is that John believed this could be interpreted a number of ways, but I think most accurately it is saying that in that moment John came to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. In that moment, his belief was based on what his eyes saw, 
on what was literally there before him. And it hit him. He understood in a way that he never forgot and recorded here for us. That moment where he came to the realization, Christ is risen. But his faith will deepen and grow as, verse 9, he gains instruction from the Old Testament scriptures. As Jesus instructs the two on the way to Emmaus, Luke 24, and as the early church begins to read the Old Testament from in new light, in the light of Jesus' resurrection. But at this point, we'll leave them alone as Peter and John return home, which paves the way for the risen Savior's first post-resurrection appearance. Verse 11, we read, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Mary, of course, then had returned to the tomb behind Peter and John. And we find her doing what she's likely been doing for parts of three days now. And that is weeping with grief. Jesus is dead. And now if anything could possibly go more wrong, his body is missing. She cannot even honor his grave and remember him here. Verse 11 continues, And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Presumably the cloth strips are laying in place indicating where Jesus' head and feet had been positioned. But Mary is not startled by these angels as such. They appear as they always do in scripture as men. And so she's not startled in that way, but is probably also in such deep grief that nothing really matters besides her grief, besides the fact that Jesus is gone and defeated by death. And so verse 13 we read that they say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she answers them. They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. So she has ducked into the front room of this chiseled out cave, the entrance being much smaller than doors in our world. And as she stands conversing with these two angels, she becomes aware of someone standing outside the tomb, right outside the small door. She's aware of some individual there. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. I'm assuming Jesus is standing just outside the door. Perhaps he has come into this uh, place into this grave, into this tomb. We, we don't know precisely, but she clearly understands him to be the gardener. She's fully convinced, you see, that Jesus is dead. That, in her words, someone has taken his corpse. Someone's made off with the body. 
The supposed cemetery manager calls her woman here, a polite, formal address similar to ma'am, something that apparently Jesus had never called her. So all that Mary could see spelled doom and gloom. Jesus was dead, his body was missing, but it was something that Mary heard that changed everything. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. He addressed her as he always had, and she immediately recognizes his voice calling her by name. And she addresses him as I suppose she always had, her Rabboni, her teacher, a term of respectful endearment. Pause just for a moment here to consider, why Mary? Why did Jesus appear to Mary first? We cannot know, of course. We cannot read the mind of God here, and that idea is not revealed to us. But I think it is very clear in the gospel text that Jesus did nothing by accident. As he discipled his people, as he ministered his grace to his own, he did nothing by accident. Perhaps he appeared first to Mary because she was last at the cross and first at the tomb. Perhaps he appeared first to her because she displayed in those two visitations a courage that outstripped the chosen twelve. She was ready to see him in a unique way. Perhaps he appeared to Mary first because her testimony as a woman would have in that day, in the legal standing of that day, carried very little weight. And Jesus chooses the weak to confound the strong. All we can know is that her response seems to be more worshipful, more joyful than any others that will follow. And so maybe this is why Jesus starts with her. He knows how she will respond. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is a challenging verse. But as she clings to his feet, from parallel passage, clinging to his feet in desperation, in desperate relief in this case, Jesus makes this rather strange comment. Now remember, Jesus will very soon instruct Thomas to touch him before Jesus has ascended. So this is not a command to Mary, stop touching me, leave me alone. It's not appropriate to touch me now. That is not what Jesus is saying. This is not a command to not touch him. It's a command to not detain him. That is, with respect to Mary, not to delay the action that she must now take. She had traveled with Jesus from Galilee to Judea. She had served his every need with full devotion. Jesus is simply telling her, Mary, it's time to move. Go and tell my disciples. 
that I'm alive. Go to my brothers and say to them, that is his brothers, not his physical brothers, Mary's children, but to the disciples. Go. There's a message of good news that she is to deliver. And she must hurry, for he is ascending to the Father. That means he, that's the next stage of the agenda. He was born. Jesus lived sinlessly. He healed. He loved. He taught. He died. He rose from the dead. The next item on the agenda is to ascend to the Father. Their Father also, but not in the same sense. Their God also, but not in the same sense. As the son of the triune God, he makes it clear to her, Mary, it's time to move. I've got much to do to teach my disciples. Go tell them I'm alive. I have defeated death. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Mary was last at the cross. She was first to see the risen Christ. Like a, another Mary then, she was highly favored. And we rejoice to witness her sorrow now turned to great joy. The once weeping Mary now bursts forth with the happiest announcement of her entire life an announcement that overwhelmed the announcement to some who had not seen her recently, that she'd been delivered by those demons, of those demons by Jesus. This was a happier announcement, a greater declaration of news that echoes down the corridors of time. I have seen the Lord. Death had clouded her vision of the ultimate victory, but the fog of death had been removed. Remember the people craning their necks to see the signals on the tower of Winchester's Cathedral. What they saw was Wellington defeated. What they did not recognize was that the rolling fog on that June day had shrouded half of the message to their eyes, the best half. When the mist cleared, when that rolling fog was gone, the full message was revealed. It was this, Wellington defeated the enemy. And despair was turned to celebration. And on the way to London, the message was corrected. Mary was likewise certain Jesus defeated was the full message. It was not the full message. In keeping with Old Testament prophecies, in fulfillment of his explicit teaching and promise, as the Messiah sent to crush the serpent's head, Jesus won the ultimate victory. His life as the Lamb of God was sacrificed in the place of sinners to satisfy God's just wrath against us. The true story 
was that Jesus drained the penalty of eternal judgment in hell, which every sinner deserves, and he satisfied that just demand for all who trust him as Lord and Savior. So once the fog of sorrow had cleared, Mary saw the entire message. Jesus defeated the enemy. I may speak to some who are yet separated from Christ. You have not come to a place of saving faith, of regeneration, by placing your trust and confidence in this good news. This is not something you can earn for yourself. It is indeed a piece of good news from a battlefield far away. News of what someone else has won for us. Imagine how silly if the citizens of Winchester, England had seen the message of Wellington's victory and had responded by picking up pitchforks and proposing to fight the French army. No, the battle was won. It was time to celebrate. It was time to rejoice. It was time to enjoy the freedom of that victory, not to pick up a pitchfork and go fight. And so it is with those who know not Christ having heard this good news, having understood this piece of news of a battle far away, of a victory that has been won, that is the ultimate victory, the response now is not to do good works. That will come. That will follow. But the response now is to turn from your sin and self-dependence, from your pride, perhaps for some, the pride of the fact that people think you're a follower of Jesus and you know in the depths of your heart you're not. The pride for others of trying to be better, trying to do better, trying to earn the favor of God. Or perhaps for some just saying, I've just not realized I need Jesus as my Savior. It must be personal. I must turn from my sin I must turn from self-dependence and trust in this Jesus who died in my place to pay the cost of my sin and judgment and whose saving grace is then given as a gift to those who trust him. Wherever you are as one separated from Christ, I encourage you today to turn from sin and self-dependence and to put your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ, who defeated the enemy.